Donald Trump may be a rat, but I have no desire to copulate with him. Wait, what? So if he wasn't a rat, Ted Cruz, you'd want to... Well, I don't know well. why I came here tonight. Brother. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee. And of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. My thanks also to uh, to Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com for covering for us for the uh, for a few days. Greatly appreciated, Nicole. And by the way, great shows that I got to listen to while driving across the desert. So uh, thank you, Nicole. And uh, if you missed any of those broadcasts, I strongly recommend you go check them out. Go to bradblog.com. They are all listed there. Some really good stuff over the last several days uh, here on the broadcast, even without me. Perhaps, especially without me, as some might say. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that, of course, is Desi Doyen. Hi, Des. How hey. are you? Desi Doyen, our producer here. They actually were very good shows. I know they were. What, are, are you suggesting I wasn't telling the no, truth? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. I'm just sort of uh, remembering. Because I would going... never. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't. But Ted Cruz, on the other hand, that opening quote. Can we do that real quick before we get into the the show proper? Uh, Ted Cruz. And, and this was, uh, I got to thank Bill Maher for noticing this thing. I don't even know when, when Ted Cruz said this. But uh, here's what we, we played it right at the top of the show. Go ahead, play this again. And I would note that Mr. Stone is a man who has 50 years of dirty tricks behind him. He's a man for whom... A term was coined. Roger Stone, he's talking about. For copulating with a rodent. Copulate. Well, let me be clear. Donald Trump may be a rat, but I have no desire to copulate with him. So he was talking, that was Ted Cruz talking about Roger Stone, who used to be, this right-winger used to work for Richard Nixon, uh, one of his dirty tricksters, uh, who, copulating with a rat. I guess I can't... You can't say what can't that is say on what the that air, is. but it's a fairly well-known yeah. term. About People him. are familiar with it, but Ted Cruz <laughs> says, while Donald Trump may be a rat, T- uh, Ted Cruz still doesn't want to... Yeah. Because if he was a rat but not Donald Trump, then Ted then Cruz might. would consider it, apparently. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's uh, kind of the stuff that went on while we uh, took a day or two off to uh, to breathe. 
and not much has changed on the Republican side. Uh, Donald Trump still holds holds a 21 point lead, according to a new national poll from uh, NBC just out today. Uh, when it comes to the possibility of a contested convention, that survey finds that a majority of registered Republicans and those who lean Republican, 51 percent in total, believe that Donald Trump should win the nomination if he wins a plurality of delegates, even if he fails to capture uh, the full, what is it, 1,237 that it would be required for a majority. Uh, the survey also shows that now 52% of those same voters are happy with a general election matchup between Donald Trump and Democratic presidential frontrunner Hillary Clinton. 52%, just 52 You would think at this point in the race, a lot more Republicans would be happy about their their nominee. Uh, just uh, Trump is enjoying the support of just over, actually not even just over, almost 50% of Republican voters in total. And just 52 percent of those voters are happy with a matchup between Trump and Hillary Clinton. How many and 30 percent would consider a third party candidate under that uh, premise between really? Trump and yes, 30 percent between Trump and Clinton? How many would consider a third party candidate? How many would uh, not be happy with the options if it was Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders? We don't know. NBC did not ask that in their NBC News poll. So we have absolutely no idea. Why would they not ask that? I don't know. I guess NBC and, and uh, Nicole spoke, spoke about this on her recent shows. Uh, MSNBC and M NBC, uh, they just seem to be disregarding Bernie Sanders, despite the fact that over the weekend, Bernie Sanders had an absolute huge weekend, three state sweep in Washington, Alaska and Hawaii. He won by overwhelming margins in each of those three states. He won by at least 40 points in each state. Uh, so not only did uh, Bernie Sanders win Washington, Alaska and Hawaii in landsl landslides, he also won every single county in all three of those states. Kind of amazing. Bernie, so Bernie Sanders has won five of the last st six states that have had nominating contests. He's won them by huge margins. And as uh, Nicole Sandler mentioned, all they could talk about over the weekend was uh, why does Bernie Sanders insist on staying in the race? It's kind of amazing. And NBC News doesn't even bother to poll to see how Republicans might feel if the matchup was Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders. That even though and a lot of people have said, well, Hillary is leading in the uh, in the delegate count, which she is, but by a fair amount less than she was before the weekend. But if you look at the contest, if you look at the nominating contest right now. Uh, Hillary has, in fact, won 20 of them. She's won 20 states. Bernie has won 15. Now, before we uh, took a day or two off for Easter, uh, he, she was up by a little bit more than 300 delegates, 300 pledged delegates over Bernie Sanders. Now she is up by no more than 268 following the weekend, and probably she's up by a lot less than that. It is unclear uh, why all of the media outlets, you had 101 delegates that were up for grabs in Washington. And yet most of the uh, most of the media outlets are still reporting that Bernie Sanders won 25 to Hillary Clinton's nine. 
in Washington state. 25 to 9, even though there are 101 delegates up for grabs. Where are the rest of them? I don't know. Nicole talked to uh, uh, Gaius Publius yesterday on the program about exactly that. His best estimate is that uh, Sanders received more than 70 in Washington to Hillary Clinton's 20-something. So uh, the delegate difference is more like about 230. Now, we've got more than 400, if I recall, 400 delegates up for grabs here in California alone later in June. So why are they writing off Bernie Sanders? I will let you decide. But it is still amazing to me uh, that they are continuing to do that and that they are continuing to misreport these so-called superdelegates. Uh, Rachel Maddow went on and on last night about how it'll be almost impossible for Bernie to overcome this huge lead that Hillary Clinton has. And she didn't bother to uh, let her viewers know that, yeah, well, it is a huge uh, lead. But about four or five hundred of those are these so-called superdelegates who haven't actually cast their vote yet. So they're still doing that. They're still doing that on the so-called progressive uh, non-wingnut outlets like MSNBC. Again, why? I don't know. Uh, going back to last week, uh, there's still a lot of concern about what exactly happened in Arizona when you had these five-hour lines specifically across Maricopa County, which is Phoenix. So there's still a lot of concerns about what actually happened three, four, five hours to vote in Arizona. Questions about what happened to registrations, uh, people who were registered as a Democrat finding showing up to find out they're registered as an independent, people who were registered as Republican finding out they were registered as independent for some reason. And therefore, because they have closed primaries in Arizona, they could not vote those those voters, even after spending two, three, four, five hours out in the uh, in the Arizona sun last week. So there is a lot of concern about that. Uh, but in, in the bargain, I think maybe maybe just maybe we have finally found something that both Republican and Democratic voters can agree on this year. I'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later in the hour. Uh, also, some very good news today from the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, really good news from the Supreme Court, at least apparently, as my guest tweeted earlier today, my guest coming up shortly, uh, he tweeted that Justice Antonin Scalia had to die so that unions may live. That good news story and another late-breaking and somewhat bizarre order issued by the court late today is all coming up next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Welcome back 
to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. uh, Actually, one uh, point that I wanted to make before I get to my guest here that I was hoping to mention in the previous segment about things having not changed uh, over the the past few days. Uh, PPP has a poll out of uh, supporters of the various Republican candidates, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, and John Kasich. Uh, Interesting little tidbit they tweeted out today. uh, the, The percent of those who think that President Obama is a Christian versus a Muslim. Yes, in 2016, this is still a thing. Uh, Of the Trump voters, those people who support Trump, who think that President Obama is a Christian, 9%. Yes, 62% of Donald Trump voters think that Barack Obama is Muslim. Not that there's anything wrong with it. And, of course, the alternate uh, to Donald Trump, Ted Cruz at this point, just 12% of Ted Cruz voters think that Obama is Christian. 56% of voters who support Ted Cruz think the president's a Muslim. So only slightly less nuts. Correct. Yeah, only slightly less. Uh, Finally... Uh, somewhat less nuts, Kasich voters, John Kasich voters, those people, those two or three people who support John Kasich, uh, of those two or three people, uh, 46%, still not a majority, but 46% of John Kasich supporters believe that uh, President Obama is a Christian, while only, only 31% believe he's a Muslim, and that's of John Kasich. Those are supporters of John Kasich, who was supposed to be not Donald Trump, not uh, Ted Cruz, not crazy at all. all. He's the reasonable one. He's uh, John Kasich, moderate, whatever. 31% of John Kasich supporters think the president's Muslim. The crazy and stupid is strong with these. With these people, you think? Okay. In a single-sentence order... The Supreme Court of the United States announced on Tuesday that the judgment of a lower court rejecting an effort to defund public sector unions is now dead. That effort to defund public sector unions would uh, would have come about by denying the union's right to charge so-called agency fees to non-union workers who benefit nonetheless from union negotiations. The lower court's ruling allowing those agency fees is, quote, affirmed by an equally divided court. The Supreme Court's ruling explains in its uh, one-line response in Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, thus a four-decade-old opinion protecting Public sector unions shall live to see another day, writes Ian Milheiser at Think Progress Justice. Sounds like good news to me. Ian joins us now. He is a constitutional law expert, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress Action Fund and editor of Think Progress Justice. Uh, His first book, published just last year, is Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian, great to have you back to the broadcast, my friend. Good to be here. Thank you so much. You bet. All right. Now, after the oral hearings uh, in in January, I believe it was, in Friedrich versus California Teachers Union, uh, you came on here. You were very disturbed. You were very troubled by the hearing. You came on to tell me that public sector unions and the way that they were financed were in big, big trouble based on the questions posed by all of the uh, at the hearing by all of the. Uh, at least by a majority of the justices. You got me very worried, Ian Melheiser. 
But today, the decision from the court came down, and it looks like you scared us all for nothing. How could you have gotten that one so terribly wrong, Ian Milheiser? Yeah, well, you know, a lot has happened since then. I mean, what, what, what we're looking at here, this decision is probably the first major consequence of Justice Scalia's death. Oh, that's um, right. So we lost an entire justice between then and now, didn't we? <laughs> yep. Okay. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, yeah, I mean, Scalia was probably going to be the fifth vote to do some serious violence to the way that public sector unions are funded. Mm-hmm. Without him there, all of a sudden, the conservatives didn't have the fifth vote that they needed. And so with a four-to-four split, the court finally decided that they, you know, they weren't even going to hear re-arguments on this decision. They're just going to make the case go away. Um, and so the practical effect is that existing law, which is pretty good for the union, sticks around. Mm-hmm. Um, the lower court's decision stays. What also stays in place is a 39-year-old decision um, that has a good rule for unions. And so it's going to be very, very hard for lower courts to find ways to screw around with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what could have been a disastrous decision um, for public sector unions instead is going to be a footnote in history. And, and I should say, uh, because you weren't the only one uh, back in January who was very worried, who was sort of writing off this entire case, it looked like it was going to be a 5-4 loss for the unions. Uh, that's where everybody thought this was going until Justice Scalia up and died in uh, in mid-February. Now, that, that case uh, that essentially... Well, it tied today, so it refers to the it defers back to the lower court's ruling. That would have uh, made it illegal for uh, unions to charge those agency fees that they currently are allowed to charge in exchange for uh, even these. Uh, well, they're able to charge non-union workers. The reason they're able to charge it is because the non-union workers benefit. Did I describe it correctly? That they benefit from the union negotiations in those shops, even if they're non-union workers? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good approximation. So what is at stake here is that if you are in a public sector, or rather, if you work for a unionized public sector employee, mm-hmm. you have an absolute right not to join the union. You not join the union if you want and that union still has to bargain on your behalf. Mm. So if the union gets a big raise for, for everyone who is in the union, you get it too. Um, what these agency fees are is that in most states, or at least in many states, um, unions are allowed to charge the non-members mm. their fair share of the cost of bargaining. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you've never been in a union negotiation, the way that it works is you have management on one side of the table, labor on the other side. Labor is generally represented by one or more representatives from the union. Often they're lawyers. You know, they provide very specialized services. They have a great deal of expertise. And someone has to pay their salary. And, you know, someone has to make sure that, um, you know, they're able to provide this service to the workers. Uh-huh. And the fairest way to make sure that they're able to provide that service is to divide the cost of the service among the people who benefit from the union. Mm -hmm. And so with the agency fee system, if you decide not to join the union, fine. You still get your raise, but you don't get that raise for nothing. You know, you, you don't get to walk off and enjoy and enjoy your raise while the rest of your colleagues who are in the union benefit from it. 
you still have to contribute to the cost um, that the union, um, the, the, mm-hmm. the cost that the unions incurred in order to get you that rate. Because those non-union workers who are in a union shop, uh, they still get all the benefits. The, the employers are not allowed to pay them less because they're not in the right. union or, or give them less benefits, right? So they actually benefit in these so-called you know, these right-to-work states where uh, uh, an employee doesn't have to join the union, they still get all the benefits of being in the union, but without having to pay all the dues. So these fees were supposed to at least uh, cover the cost of that somewhat. Now, how important... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, like, right-to-work is one of the worst misnomers in the law right now. I mean, essentially what right-to-work laws are is that they're freeloader laws. They're laws saying that you cannot join the union, and you have an absolute right not only to get all the benefits of being in the union, but to not pay your fair share. Mm-hmm. They're lawsuit is that people can get something for nothing. Um, and what this lawsuit was trying to do is essentially put a right-to-work regime in, a, in place in every single state for public sector unions. Um, it looks like there were five votes that were going to do this. It would have been a mm-hmm. massive blow, not just to the effectiveness of unions, but I mean, in, in many cases, to the, the viability of public sector unions, because they would lose one of their primary funding mechanisms. Um, and now, you know, th- that crisis has been averted for the well, that's what I want to talk. And you're right. Freeloader state is a much better uh, term than right to work state. Uh, but, you know, the Republicans get to get to decide what language our corporate news media uses, it seems. Uh, so uh, you mentioned this just now, Ian Milheiser, a bit. But uh, I want you to speak to how, how important was this case specifically that, you know, looked like it was going to, you know, be shot down at the Supreme Court. How important was the case to unions, both public and private and, uh, you know, to the unions themselves, but also the larger picture to elections themselves with public sector unions so important now as one of the last remaining bulwarks uh, to try to compete against the enormous corporate spending on elections following Citizens United and some of the other uh, related cases from the Supreme Supreme Court uh, that have resulted really in a near corporate dark money takeover of our public elections. This sort of small case uh, was set to have enormous consequences had it gone the other way. Am I correct? Yeah, I mean, yeah, this was this was potentially an existential threat to many because, you know, these agency fees are a major funding mechanism. For unions, I mean, there are some unions that have found ways around so-called right-to-work laws, um, but it's not easy mm-hmm. because you know when you live under a right-to-work regime, essentially what the state is asking the union to do is to provide a very expensive and very specialized service for nothing, mm-hmm. and you know not a lot of unions can afford that deal. Um, so you know, so it's a problem. Um, this um, you know, public sector union. About uh, close to half of unionized workers, I believe, are in public sector unions. So this would have effectively put a right-to-work regime in place for, you know, about half of unionized workers. Um, so it was a major t- attack on the labor movement in general. And as you're saying, you know, as you said, it also has huge political implications. Because, you know, I mean, let's, let's peek behind the curtain a bit here, mm-hmm. you, you know. There are five justices, now there's only four, but there were five justices on the Supreme Court who were appointed by Republican presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, unions tend to back Democrats in elections, and they back them more and more as 
Republican as the parties have polarized, and Republicans have become more and more anti-union. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you potentially had a situation where five Republican justices, three of whom, by the way, were uh, installed George W. Bush and Bush v. Gore, mm-hmm. um, five Republican justices were going to defund a massive segment of the infrastructure um, that helped you know, of the Democratic Party infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, there there, there were a lot of layers to what was going on. Is it fair to say, Ian, that that is why this case was brought to the court in the first place, that this was the real aim? It wasn't really about, oh, these these people shouldn't have to pay these agency fees, that this was really about trying to kill uh, these public sector unions with this uh, with this case? I I think that, you know, the conservative activists who back cases like this, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a lot of cross-cutting interests here. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, they are interested in shutting down unions because strong unions generally mean that um, employers have to pay more, and mm-hmm. often these interests are the employers who don't want to have to pay more. Right. Um, but they're also interested in electing more Republicans and fewer Democrats. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think that you have to choose a motivation here. I, I, I think that there are people, you know, who back lawsuits like this, who want to undermine unions because they don't like what unions do in, as their core function, and they want to undermine unions because they don't like the political views of unions. The, there was uh, another, uh, what you described as a baffling order issued today by the court. I want to get to that in a, in a quick moment, sure. but Ian, I, I want to just close this loop here for a minute. Scott Walker, governor of uh, Wisconsin, uh, several years ago, put restrictions uh, in place on public sector unions in uh, Wisconsin. That became the basis of an epic political battle and a recall election at the time. Uh, is is what has happened now at the Supreme Court? Does that have any effect on a governor like Scott Walker or on his particular uh, order to restrict uh, unions in his state? I mean, basically, what this what this Friedrich's non-decision means is that these you know decisions about the role of unions mm-hmm. and you know questions like that will still be decided by the democratic process. Mm-hmm. And so that means that if you live in a state and you elect someone like Scott Walker and you elect a legislature that is sympathetic to Scott Walker, then that legislature can still pass laws that are very bad for unions. So nothing that the Supreme Court did today prevent anti-union laws from being enacted. What this decision does mean is that if someone wants to undermine unions, they don't get to take a shortcut. They don't get to go to five justices and get the justices to put in place the laws they want for them. If they want a right-to-work law, they got to go to their state legislature, and they got to do the hard work of winning the seats in the legislature and passing the law. How how did this case, Ian, get to the Supreme Court in the first place? You, you mentioned this is one of those cases that was brought up by these right-wingers who were out there sort of looking yeah. f- for cases. I mean, there was a 40-year precedent that you described on this, right. uh, that everything was fine. So was this one of those cases that the then, uh, in, in, no longer, but then right-wing majority of the Supreme Court wanted to hear so that they could do some of that activist judiciary stuff that they and their oh. uh, right-wing supporters pretend to abhor? Oh, yeah. No, this was absolutely something that the conservatives on the court signaled very loudly they wanted a case like this. So, you know, 
almost 40 years ago, there was a case called Abood, mm-hmm. which said that these agency fees are allowed, that they are constitutional. Um, about four years ago, Justice Alito snuck a few paragraphs into an opinion saying, oh, by the way, like, we think these agency fees are troubling, and, you know, so, you know, suggesting very loudly that if someone wanted to bring a case mm. challenging the agency fees, he'd probably strike them down. <laughs> and then National Right to Work Legal Defense Fund, which, as the name suggests, is an anti-union legal group, took Alito up on his offer, and Alito made a big cut at public sector unions in another case called Harris about two years ago. This third case, Friedrichs, was litigated by a guy named Michael Carbon, who also litigated the last case trying to get the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Very, very conservative lawyer who, like, you know, he's, he's a partner in a big law firm, so he doesn't exclusively do, um, you know, sometimes people just come along and give him a lot of money and he argues the case. But a huge amount of his practice is um, cases brought on behalf of right-wing groups. So, uh, right, so right to work is a lie, uh, that phrase. Uh, the idea that Republicans are against uh, activist uh, judges is also a lie, because clearly that is exactly what this court was trying to do, was trying. They wanted uh, to change this legislation in some way, uh, if they could. Uh, the Supreme Court also issued, Ian, what you described as a, a somewhat baffling order today. Uh, in the case of the religious group, and this is another one of those cases, let me see if I if I understand this correctly, and then you can explain this, this order. Uh, but this was uh, a case of a religious group challenging the Obamacare uh, solution, really, that they had come up with uh, to keep these employers from having to provide contraceptive care to employees, which is required under the, uh, in the Affordable Care Act. But these religious groups did not want to, uh, some of them, you know, felt it was re- a religious liberty matter. They didn't want to have to provide contraception uh, to their employees. So if I understand the challenge in this case, Zubek v. Burwell, an accommodation was had been made to those religious employers to opt out of providing contraceptive care to their employers. And if they did, the insurance companies on their own would have to uh, supply the contraception. And now these groups, these religious groups, are saying that just by opting out of the uh, requirement to uh, provide uh, contraception, that they are, in fact, opting in, that they are giving their approval for the contraception to come from another insurance, uh, from the insurance company. Do, do, I, do I understand that correctly? It's kind of confusing. Yeah, it is a very so let me see if I can make some sense of it and then try to make sense of this order that came down today, which is an especially confusing part of this very confusing case. Right. Um, so this goes back to Hobby Lobby from a few years ago. Uh-huh. Um, Hobby Lobby involved regulations that require the government, and it's not just birth control, it's a long list of preventive care. Um, you know, it's cancer mm-hmm. screenings, it's vaccinations, and it's contraception as well. It's a whole long list of things that employer-provided health plans are required to include under these federal regulations. Mm -hmm. In Hobby Lobby, you had an employer that objected to contraception on a religious ground and said, we will not include birth control, at least certain forms of birth control, in our health plan. Um, And the Supreme Court said that employers have a right to do that. If they object to birth control on religious grounds, they can refuse to include it in their plan. And instead they strongly suggested there was this other option, 
um, that they could use for employers like Hobby Lobby. Zubik is about that other option. And where what the other option is, is that if you are a religious employer, if you object to birth control on religious grounds, you do not have to include birth control in your health plan. What you can do instead is you fill out a two-page form. You fill out this two-page mm-hmm. form, you send it off to your health insurer, and once you send that form off, you are now exempt from the birth control rule, and that insurer will then work with will then work with the employees of the company to make sure they get a separate birth control only plan. Sounds so fair. That, I don't want to I don't want to give that to my employees, so I opt out, I fill out this form, I say I'm not going to do it and then I'm done with it. Sounds perfectly that's right. reasonable. That's right. Now now so Zubik involved employers who objected even to filling out the form. They claim that like that makes them complicit in a sin because they fill out that form, then it sets in motion a chain of events that leads to some woman getting her slutty slut pills down the road. <laughs> right. um, and, and so, you know, and so here we are. Um, the order that the court handed down today, um, it, it's a very confusing order. I mean, basically what it, it asks for, the, for additional briefing from the parties to answer a question about whether there's some other way that um, these that these birth control rules could be structured uh-huh. that would be less offensive to the employers, and then it offers a possible solution. And the possible solution, and I'm going to split a very thin hair here mm-hmm. because that's what the Supreme Court said, is that instead of the employer filling out a form and giving that form, you know, that was a form just about. Um, wanting to opt out of the birth control rules. Instead, when the employer decides that it wants a health plan for its employees, it tells the health plan, hey guys, uh, don't include birth control. And then at that point, the, the health plan knows that it's got to go to the employees and set up a separate uh, birth control-only plan for them. Well, so if, if there's... Of filling out, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, yeah, so if, if, if they... Out a form, yeah. They will instead just tell the health insurer not to include birth control. And the Supreme Court seems to think that there's a difference between those two options. (laughs) Which is kind of amazing because uh, if the whole fight here is that by opting out, we are opting by opting out by filling this form, we are, in fact, opting in to birth control. I don't I'm not sure exactly how that how they're going to be, uh, how those same religious groups are going to view this any differently simply by telling the insurers in advance that, hey, uh, no matter what we do from here, don't give uh, birth control to anybody. Uh, I, I mean, I guess that's what it comes down to. But is this again because the court will otherwise be split four to four on this case? And and if they are, you're going to have uh, a situation where you've got different rules in yeah. various parts of the country. Yeah. No, I, I suspect that a big reason this order did come down is because the court is unusually motivated to try to find a workable solution here. So with Friedrichs. Because Friedrichs was a case asking the court to overrule a precedent, mm-hmm. if Friedrichs gets four to four and there isn't a decision, all that means is that the old rule stands and every judge in the country knows what to do. In this, in Zubik, uh-huh. courts have split. Like some courts have upheld, most courts have upheld the fill out the form rules. Um, a handful of courts have struck it down. Uh-huh. And so judges don't know what to do right now, they don't know what the law is. And the Supreme Court doesn't want to maintain a situation 
where people don't know what the wall is. And so I think they are casting about trying to find a way to thread this needle. Um, you know, I don't think that the difference between filling out a form and telling an insurance company something is likely to, uh, to placate too many, too many of these religious employers. Uh-huh. But maybe it's the fig leaf that the Supreme Court needs so that they can go ahead and decide the case. And, you know, I think from the perspective of the woman, um, you, know, you know, I don't want to speak for, for women here. But, you know, I will say the government's goal is to make sure that birth control is available to all these working women. Mm -hmm. And at least from the government's perspective, I suspect that the government's attitude, so long as it's legal, is going to be, look, we don't care if they fill out a form, if they, you know, send a smoke signal, if they call their insurer on the phone, if they, like, jump up and down and do a religion and, like, wave their hands in the air. Like, they don't care how, I don't think they're going to care about those details just so long as the women get their birth control. And, and so I think that what it sounds like they're trying to find, desperately trying to, as you said, cast about to find a narrow way to decide this case so that it will then apply all across the country and they can do away with these split decisions. But this is of a piece, it seems to me, with the you know the, the problem that the court is facing right now with these four to four splits, uh, you know, one in the Friedrichs case on unions, now trying to deal with it on this so-called religious freedom issue uh, in involving birth control and Obamacare. What we're seeing now, uh, the real problem with having eight justices, it seems to me, and I've got just a minute or two left here with you, Ian Milheiser. Uh, It seems like we maybe, I don't know, I want to get your thoughts. Are we seeing a number of cracks in the otherwise unified uh, Republican front against even meeting with uh, Obama's nominee, Judge Merrick Garland, uh, you know, even meeting him, much less holding hearings uh, on him, much less voting on uh, his nomination. Are are we seeing cracks here? And will it make any difference? I know Mark Kirk of Illinois has said his colleagues should man up uh, and and meet with uh, Garland. Uh, Kansas Senator uh, Jansen, I think it was, thought that uh, they should at least meet with him. Susan Collins of Maine is calling on her colleagues to saying it's a serious mistake in their political calculations. Can can this hold, uh, Ian, or or will they will the center uh, collapse here? As it as they say. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you're seeing like the sort of green eggs and ham strategy that Mitch McConnell announced in the beginning. You know, I will not meet him in a box. I will not meet him with a fox. Like. <laughs> There are a lot of senators who are uncomfortable with the green eggs and ham outright refusal to even acknowledge Merrick Garland's existence. Right. So uh, about uh, about a third of uh, uh, about a third of the Republican caucus has said that they will meet with him, and then a smaller group of Republican senators have said, "Oh, and he should also get a hearing." Mm-hmm. So you know that that that's something. I I think that. The problem that this nomination has is that there are only 46 Democrats, and you need 60 votes to break a filibuster, and Ted Cruz has already said that he will filibuster because Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, so, like, if there are 14 Republican senators who are willing to break with their party leadership and who are willing to risk the wrath of the interest group, that will try to potentially try to primary challenge them if they vote to support Judge Garland, then, you know, maybe Judge, Judge Garland gets confirmed this year and he becomes Justice Garland, and then, you know, 
then we don't have all these four to four decisions anymore. But I, I, I am doubtful that there are going to be four. Republican senators who are willing to go that far. Well, last question, Ian. Uh, will Is it possible that uh, the Republicans will begin to realize that, look, uh, you know, Merrick Garland, Judge, Judge Merrick Garland, yeah. is not particularly progressive. I mean, he's, he's a very right. moderate centrist in many ways. Can a case be made that right-wingers actually stand to do much better in, you know, with Garland on the court uh, in some of these cases that we're hearing now, etc., than, than they would at, yeah. you know, at any time in the future? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are starting, you know, you're hearing that. And I think Susan Collins, Senator Susan Collins, made a similar argument today mm-hmm. that, yeah, I mean, Judge Garland, you know, he's a, he's a fairly moderate liberal. He's also 63 years old, which mm-hmm. means he won't serve as long as, say, a 49-year-old who's appointed to the court. Um, and so it is likely, you know, it, 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 it is likely that a, or that a Democratic president Picking a justice under different circumstances is going to pick someone younger and more liberal. And so the question that I think Republican senators need to ask themselves is at what point is it strategic for them to hate? You, you, you know, let's say it's September and Hillary's up 20 points over Trump. Yeah. Um, and, you, you, you know, at, at that point, do they want to roll the dice on whoever Hillary Clinton's going to name? Or are they better off taking the, the the offer that's on the table? I think the question is, you've got these, you know, really just strident interest groups that don't believe in any kind of compromise, and I don't know if they will be willing to give permission to Republicans to cave, even if it's in the strategic interest of Republicans to do so. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they seem like they're uh, uh, cutting off their nose to spite their face here, and uh, and that's the, and you mentioned Hillary Clinton. That what you know? What happens if Bernie Sanders wins? What happens if Donald Trump wins? Which Susan Collins right. was also quite worried about. I suspect we will be talking with you much more in the uh, months and uh, weeks and months ahead. Uh, Ian Ian Milheiser, constitutional law expert, editor of Think Progress Justice, and author of the book Injustices: The Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. I suspect you're going to have to uh, start get, getting to work on the afterword for that uh, for that book, Ian. <laughs> a lot's happened since I it's come out. Paper book, uh, the paperback <laughs> edition coming out has a new epilogue discussing the vacancy. <laughs> I, I figured it would have to. Boy, those things uh, get go out of date quickly. Ian Milheiser, always great to talk to you, my friend. Check out his work at thinkprogress.org and on the Twitters at iMilheiser. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Brad. Okay, a quick break, and we will come back with more Bradcast. Uh, now that I have found something that both Republican voters and Democratic voters absolutely agree on, at least in the state of Arizona, at least in the county of Maricopa, at least in the city of Phoenix. That story is next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. <laughs> San Francisco, she must have lost her way. Posting a poster of Pancho and Cisco, one California day. She says she believes in Robin Hood and Brotherhood and colors of green and gray. And all you can do is laugh at her. Welcome back to the broadcast. Oh, Arizona. 
Oh, Arizona. Last week, uh, right after the Arizona uh, disaster of a primary on Tuesday of last week, on Wednesday's show, I played uh, a number of clips concerning the problems. This was after the uh, Maricopa County, that's Phoenix, Maricopa County recorder, Helen Purcell had changed the number of polling places from 211 back in 2012 down to just 60 this year, a 70 percent reduction from 2012 to this year. In 2012, you did not have two different contested primaries on both the Republican and the Democratic side. Now you do. So what do they do? They lowered the number of uh, polling places and predictably, totally predictably, completely predictably, it led to an absolute disaster. And afterwards, I went ranting and raving on the show, you know, telling people, look, this is why I, I raise so much holy hell about elections and about election procedures and about voter suppression and about voting electronic voting machines and being able to oversee the count because you cannot wait until after the election is over. And of course, if it's Democrats who get screwed, well, uh, nothing's going to happen anyway. But this time... These long lines affected Republicans as well. I played a clip from Maria Teresa Kumar. She's the Voto Latino CEO uh, speaking about the problems with these long lines. I think this was actually on the night of the election. One of the things that I'm hearing a lot from here on the ground in Arizona, though, is that I think it's going to be a forecast, a preview of what's going to happen during uh, the November election. Yeah. Is the long lines that are happening here. And that, at the end of the day, the fact that it's impacting, for the very first time, Republicans voters as much as Democratic voters might actually give us a window into modernizing these election systems. Yes, now that it's affected Republicans, maybe we can do something about it. When it was just Democrats, well, the hell with them. So, uh, yeah, uh, this was all this all came about, by the way, uh, because of the lack of scrutiny of federal scrutiny that would have existed under the Voting Rights Act until the Supreme Court gutted it back in 2013. It's not a guarantee that the, uh, the Department of Justice or federal court would have stopped this from happening, but at least they would have looked at it. They would have been forced uh, to look at it, the state of Arizona, the county of uh, Maricopa, because of their history of discrimination at the polls, would have required voters, I'm sorry, w would have been required to show that voters would not be disproportionately affected, certain voters in certain areas. Uh, and as we would later come to find out, there was fewer polling places in minority areas around the uh, around Phoenix. And so hopefully this would have been stopped had there been that federal scrutiny that used to be there under the Voting Rights Act. That is there no more because the Supreme Court, before Antonin Scalia died, decided that he would uh, kill, he would join the other uh, uh, right-wingers on the court and essentially kill the most important part of the Voting Rights Act, the part of the Voting Rights Act that allowed uh, the federal government to oversee these uh, problems and these concerns before they took place, before voters were disenfranchised, before the elections happened, and before it was then, therefore, too late to do anything about it. You have to get it right on Election Day. You have to get it right on Election Night, as I like to say. Now, this was done, this, this cutback of polling places, presumably the public story is oh, to save money, also to allow it to be more convenient for voters. 
because what they did was they combined all of these uh, polling places into what they call voting centers. So that you don't have to go to your own precinct. You can go to any precinct in town and be able to cast your vote. This was a problem uh, when Denver came up with this. uh, I think it was back in 2006. And again, that led to absolute disasters because when the computers went down, people couldn't vote. In this case... I don't think the computers went down, but there was all kinds of problems with, uh, you know, the registration and just the number of people showing up. So uh, there was a, uh, a, a hearing in the House Elections Committee of the Republican State Legislature on Monday. Uh, Maricopa County recorder Helen Purcell once again, you know, took responsibility Uh, For what happened that after originally blaming voters, she really blamed voters for waiting in line that long. Oh, they should have voted early. They should have done absentee. Uh, The secretary of state there, Michelle Reagan, she took responsibility, she claims, though, again, that means absolutely nothing. Oh, I take responsibility. And then, well, what happens? What will you do? Will you quit? Will you resign? No, they won't. There were calls at this hearing from a lot of angry people for uh, at least Helen Purcell to resign. There was calls for a re-vote to hold the vote again. Yeah, well, too late. And there has been uh, calls for an investigation by the Department of Justice. Now uh, a a moveon.org petition has so far collected, what is it, about half a million signatures calling for a Department of Justice investigation, which there should be. Because we need to figure out, A, how did this happen? And B, what happened to all of those uh, those voters who showed up who were registered as Democrats, who who thought they were registered as Democrat, only to show up and find out that they were registered as independent. And because they have closed primaries in Arizona, those voters were not able to vote. Well, they were able to vote. They were given a provisional ballot. But if, in fact, in the database it says they are, you know, an independent instead of a Democrat, their provisional vote will not be counted. The same is true for Republicans. Some Republicans reported showing up, longtime Republicans, finding uh, that they were suddenly somehow independents. This meeting was extraordinary. It went on for about three and a half hours with angry voters, Republican and Democratic, all agreeing it was an absolute disaster. About 80 percent of those people, ironically enough, did not get to testify at this hearing because the woman who was running the House Elections Committee hearing ended up just cutting it all off because she had to go and take a vote on the floor of the uh, of the state house uh, to make it even easier to corrupt elections with dark money, ironically enough. But I want to play Do I have I want to play a, a few uh, got a few minutes here. I want to play some of the testimony from some of those voters who were absolutely furious, disappointed, saddened, uh, who bothered to show up at the uh, at this House State uh, Arizona State House Committee Election Committee hearing yesterday. Let's run through a, a few of these. Uh, here is a, a young man who was just furious that recorder Helen Purcell was blaming the voters for those long lines. We demand that the necessary steps are taken to ensure this will not happen again. We have three more votes this year, not mentioning the many more votes we have in the future. You closed polling places. You denied people the right to, you denied proper ballots. You made sure that many people had to choose between voting or keeping their job. Then our recorder goes out and blames the voters for this. How dare you blame us for this? 
To those officials that fail us, you must show us you have integrity. You must resign. Stop pretending that this is how things are supposed to be. Stop pretending that incompetence, corruption are acceptable from elected officials. 30 seconds. Stop pretending you represent us. We do not want platitudes. We want and we do not want empty promises. We want action and accountability. Know that the days where we are silent are not over. Every vote counts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, every vote is supposed to count. Here was a disabled voter uh, who, who said that uh, she went because her early vote, she was going to early vote, but that somehow that ballot was misplaced, uh, talking about the, those long lines. So the people who had to leave, it's not because they weren't brave or they weren't tenacious. They just couldn't wait. Four hours was more than enough. Not only that, I am on the early voter list and I, I'm saying I did get a vote, I did get a vote, and then either it was misplaced or mailed accidentally, I was gonna hand deliver it. I went into the voting place and said I was handicapped they said I had to wait online and do a provisional vote. I said, I'm going to have to leave then because I can't stand online. They said, there's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. Uh, here was a, a, a father testifying on, an elderly father testifying on behalf of his daughter, uh, who was told she stood online for hours only to find out that for some reason her registration had been switched to independent. She stood in line for hours. And they told her that she wasn't a Democrat anymore. She was an independent and she wouldn't be able to vote. She's always been registered as a Democrat. Suddenly, she's been changed. She called me. She was in tears. One of the facts she was very upset about also was that they called the election before even a very small percentage of people had the votes in that were waiting in line. And they were coming out and telling the people that were standing in line that your vote is not going to count. The election has been called. Now, that uh, calling the election, that was not the fault uh, specifically of Arizona or Helen Purcell. That was the fault of the media. That was the fault of the, the corporate media. AP, CNN, Fox, uh, MSNBC all said that, uh, you know, all called Hillary Clinton as the winner when people were still in line to vote for hours it's their right to do so. It's not illegal. Uh, maybe it should be illegal if there are still votes to be cast. I always complain that they call it before the votes are actually counted. In this case, they weren't even cast before the before the media you know, called the race, which is absolutely outrageous. Called it in that case for uh, for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. It wasn't just Democrats who were furious about this. Republicans, as I said, were as well. Here was one of them once again at that House committee hearing at the state legislature in Arizona yesterday. How does it feel to be laughed at, Ms. Purcell? You were laughing at us on Tuesday, and you are laughing at us now behind that cold gaze you're staring me down with. I registered to vote as a Republican. I was denied my right to vote. They gave me a fraudulent identification as party not declared. I have not changed my address in 10 years. I registered to vote on time. I was robbed of my vote. This is a serious crime. And I demand, I demand that someone be held accountable. This is a high crime and there must 
speed punishment. So there you go. Republicans and Democrats alike agree. What happened in Arizona was a disaster. One of those voters uh, was asking, can we have extended voting? Can we have a revote? Can we open things back up? Uh, so that all of those people who waited in line for two, three, four, five hours or couldn't afford to wait in line could have a chance to vote. Here's that voter uh, and a response from uh, Arizona State Rep. J.D. Mesnard, a, a Republican. This discussion is going to be ongoing past, will the, be. Point that this, that, uh, past the point that this election is relevant. If you had the ability to ex- put forth a extended voting period with same-day registrations and open primaries it would pretty much change the country. There is nothing we can do about what the election that just occurred. We can't go back and sort of retroactively give people extended time. It is not that simple. If we do that, it disenfranchises a lot of people who did vote and then we're all in all kinds of other legal water. But I just want you to be aware of what legal parameters we must work within. I don't want to get somebody's hopes up that we can just snap our fingers and redo things. It does not work that way. No, it does not. After the election, it is too late. It is too late to deal with any problems that happened on Election Day and often that happen in the counting of the vote. That's why Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted by the Supreme Court, is so important because that allows you to find the problems before they happen. And that's why, as I said, I drive you crazy all year around not just after an election, but before an election, not right before it, but months before it, sometimes years before it. This stuff matters. You cannot wait until after the election is done. I am tired of being proven right after it is too late. It is too late after the election is done. Pay attention to your electoral system, people. Uh, before it's too late. Don't wait until after. It's hilarious that you're tired of being right. Yeah, it, well, it is. <laughs> but I am. I really am. I'm, I'm tired of being right when it means that people uh, have been disenfranchised and lost their right to take part in their democracy. All right, my thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to Ian Milheiser of Think Progress Justice, and once again to Nicole Sandler for, of RadioOrNot.com for filling in for us over the last few days. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it as ever at bradblog.com. It's free. Enjoy and share it with your friends. Uh, Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at TheBradBlog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.